This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by National Chicken Wing Day, Franklin. National Chicken Wing Day is tomorrow, Saturday, July 29th. Franklin, what is your chicken wing of choice? Man, that's a tough question. I, I tend to stay away from the hot chicken wings and go more towards the uh, the uber-flavored chicken wing, like a Korean barbecue wing or, you know, I like the, the garlic parmesan, something like that. Um, I, I tend to gravitate towards that. No matter what flavor, I do like to dunk a chicken wing in blue cheese. That's that's a go-to. Standard procedure. No ranch, always blue cheese. Uh, I like the I like a meaty. I kind of like the uh, the drumstick part of the wing, and I like it. I like it a little fried, a little lightly fried. Maybe this traditional traditional hot buffalo. I just love buffalo chicken wings. I can't get enough of them. I can consume a ginormous pile of wings. Have you ever seen me just kind of get busy with a with a pile of 20, 25 wings? I've seen you do a lot of things I'd like to erase from my memory, and yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, that is definitely one of them. All right, well, on that tasty note, I will be participating in National Chicken Wing Day tomorrow, July 29th. Get out there and get some wings, support your local restaurants, and on that happy note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. We visit with Ed Eggie, Vice President of Government Relations and Workforce Development at the National Retail Federation, who will discuss the emerging policy and legal challenges around artificial intelligence. The big question is, does artificial intelligence make it easier to artificially discriminate? The trial bar sure seems to think so. We'll dive into that and other pending issues with Ed and then wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line, public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. Well, as our listeners know, we talked uh, recently on this podcast about a variety of recent labor community, labor-related developments, a full Democratic majority on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for the first time in a while. Uh, obviously, what's going on at the National Labor Relations Board and their, their jihad against Starbucks and Amazon. And of course, this last week of headlines where the White House is kind of walking back from aggressively pursuing a confirmation for Labor Secretary-designee nominee Julie Sue and uh, will likely keep her in active role. So we wanted to get our arms around a bunch of that stuff. And there's nobody better to help walk us through it than Ed Eggie, the Vice President of Government Relations and Workforce Development National Retail Federation and a frequent contributor to the Working Lunch Podcast. Ed, thanks for coming back on. Joe, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, always good to always good to join you guys. Well, I appreciate it, pal. I know it's the Dog days of summer in Washington, D.C., and but lot, still a lot going on, especially at the agency and regulatory level. So let me jump in on the EEOC part. Sure. And I will, uh, you know, get her name wrong. But Miss Katagel uh, yes. has been confirmed to to permanent, not a permanent spot, but a full spot, full term spot right. on the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, which gives President Biden the first real Yep. You know, these 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 appointments and the confirmation process always and they have terms, kind of like NLB people and other commissions, they have terms. So a new president doesn't come in and just wipe out the old board. Yep. He nominate he or she can nominate people as you know the term ends. But so it's taken a little over two years. 
President Biden now has a full working Democratic majority on the EEOC. And so the basic question to you, my friend, is, you know, what will change now for employers? What should what should that what should that mean for employers? Will they be do you foresee the staff and the commission of the EEOC being as vigorous and, and, and diligent in their mission as, say, their counterparts across the street, the NLRB? What do you what's what's an employer, whether it's whether it's, you know, Bloomin' Brands based in Tampa, big, you know, national important player in the industry, or it's at Eggie's Barn Grill in Alexandria, Virginia. What, what does it mean to you? Yeah. Um, so, oh, I, we have to put my bar in Alexandria. I don't know. I no. I mean, maybe. Well, uh, want your bar at? Yeah. Let's go. Let's go like Virginia Beach area. Like that'd nice. be nice. Like, like yeah. Right. I, mean, I, I like it. Uh, yeah. So, um, like, yeah, Sandbridge. I don't know somewhere down there. Anyway, so uh, what can we do? Yeah. No, I would say EEOC is going to change things uh, dramatically here. So yeah, to your point. Obviously, this is the first time we're sitting here in July 2023. This is the first time that the president has has had a majority over there. Um, our friend Keith Sonderling is still there. Um, our friends um, who uh, you know who are you know fighting the good fight are still over there. I would say that you know I that charges um, into the EEOC were significantly down over the last few years. You've seen uh, race, allegations of racial discrimination, sexual discrimination down dramatically. What did tick up, and this is going to be of no surprise to you and your listeners, going into 2023, they're going to say, well, the charges are up. The charges, and this was kind of what I was on the, when when we first met, this is what we were talking about. This was, the charges were all the COVID and the religious discrimination based on who was going to get and who was not going to get the vaccine. You remember all that stuff. Um, And so, oh yeah. So that, those were the charges and that coming in. So, you know, you are going to, you know, you're going to see articles. Well, charges were up last year. It had everything to do. If you look at the number, if you delve into numbers, even a little bit, there's been some good reporting on this, that the numbers really were in terms of, you know, of vaccine, return to work, all that stuff. A lot of that ended up in the lap of the EEOC. So where are we now? Uh, companies spend billions and billions of dollars every year trying to actively diversify their workforce through DEI programs. All of that's well and good. But what where I really think the, the, the new majority on the EEOC is going to matter, and uh, member Sonderling has written about this and talked about this, um, you know, Keith Sonderling is really the expert on this, is going to be this employment discrimination based on AI results. So the argument goes, Joe, is that, look, you know, there's these tools out there that allow an employer to sort through stacks and stacks and stacks of resumes and pick out who he or she wants for a particular job. Um, And there's already been some states and localities who have looked into this. And the most aggressive law in this area is New York City's. And honestly, it's still a pretty workable law for my members. But what what New York City says is, look, if you just turn your entire hiring process over to these computers, then these computers could, could discriminate and you have no idea. And um, and as long as you have some human oversight of the process at the end of the day, and in other words, as long as these AI tools, and there's many of them, you know, as long as those AI tools look through the resumes, but at the end of the day, you have a living human being taking some, some finite number, let's say eight to 10 resumes, looking at them, seeing the real person, calling them, having a conversation over Zoom or bringing them in in person, then you're exempt from the law. And 
not to go too far into this, but Washington, D.C. came back and at the prompting of our friends in the trial bar said, look, this is a get out of jail free card for these employers because all they need to do is use these AI tools. And then as long as they have a breathing human being at the end of the day that reviews these processes, they're out of this. And that Washington, D.C. council is what you need to eliminate. And they went far, very far. The D.C. council, I testified against it. Um, we, we had a lot of conversations with the D.C. Council. Eventually, nothing got written. But the trial bar kept coming back and saying, it is merely the use of these tools to call the stacks and stacks of resumes that Bloomin or Inspire or any of, your, any of the um, you know, restaurant companies that listen to this call. You know, when you guys get stacks and stacks of resumes, it is merely the, t- the, 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 the if you flip on those AI tools to call out, look, I'm hiring a lawyer and I want a, I want a law. If you, you know, if you use them to say, I'm hiring someone in the Dallas area and you use, you plug into the AI tool, a series of zip codes and say, I want someone around this area. If you say, look, I want someone with accounting and I want the AI tool to scrub those resumes and get someone with 10 years of accounting experience. The minute, the minute you do that, these trial lawyers would argue, you are going to eliminate some perfectly qualified individual who just didn't write his or her resume in just the right way. And you are inherently discriminating against them. I think that argument right there, which again, you know, NRF has taken the position that these tools can be used proactively to actually diversify our workforce. Um, I think that that argument is going to be very, very, um, let's just say, uh, accepted by the new majority of the EEOC. And so while I think this is a wonky issue, many, many of the folks listening to this call will use these tools um, you know, and I don't have to, I don't want to prompt any particular brand, but like, you know, you, you know, Salesforce, LinkedIn, all of these guys have these tools, um, and build in. And so I think the minute you use these tools, we're going to see a lot of, a lot of activity from the EEOC. Uh, yeah. You just answered, you kind of answered the question I was getting ready to ask. If you leverage these 30, these third party, you know, job boards and all the yep. Salesforce monster, whatever it is, do you, do you share in that? quote unquote liability if, if something happens. I, I would assume the trial bar is always going to go to where the deepest pockets are. So I'm going to answer my own question and say yes. Yeah. Um, no, and that's and that's just it, right? I mean, like, you know, your members have you know, your our my members, your listeners have so many resumes coming in that they can't possibly begin to call these through. And so they yeah, they so they use these they use these computerized tools. And the trial bar would say the minute you use these tools you are inherently inherently discriminating against someone. Um, and to your point about deep pockets, this is a new area for them to explore, right? Like <clears throat> the racist manager, the sexist manager, my members are doing everything they can to make sure that never, never, ever, ever happens. And there's a lot of data that, again, the money we spend on DEI, the low numbers of complaints coming into the EOC by historical standards. Like, I think those are having real significant positive impacts, which is great for you, me, everybody, our members, the, the, their workers. It's great for everybody but the trial lawyers. And the trial lawyers need a new area. And I really do think this is going to be it. Well, you know, we should always be trying to preserve, you know, save a struggling trial lawyer. At exactly. 2023. Yeah. Um, so, so I get it for the Salesforce piece. I get it for the monster. What, what about kind of up the top of the pecking order executive placement firms? You know, uh, um, of course, some of the big names escape me now, but you know, yeah. in the restaurant industry, we have a very prestigious 
organization called the Elliot, Alice Elliott's group, who's just placed tons of CEOs in this industry. Yep. You know, you get Corn Ferry and some of those national, okay. you know, senior executive placement form. Same deal. Probably even uh, more potential yeah. for for issues there, correct? Yeah. I mean, I again, it's going to be what the EEOC does, who do they go after and how. Um, you know, I mean, again, it, it would depend on the law. Like right now, the law in New York City is, yeah, you can use those firms as long as at the end of the day, you have some human oversight over the process. So if Corn Ferry brings, you know, three potential CIO candidates to you, and you know you pick one yeah you're out of, you're out of the process even you, i mean you're out of you're you you get you get out of out of liability even if through the process corn ferry used some sort of tool an ai tool but um you know going forward i mean the again the trial lawyers see this as a as a ripe area for them to explore and you know the sort of the classic discrimination case is getting harder and harder for them to make. Like, you know, again, it's, it's great. It's a good thing. Um, you know, we want diversified workforces. We, we want aggressive DEI programs, making sure that we have a wide, vast variety of candidates. And again, if you talk to, and I have, if you talk to these software providers, you know, they, 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 are, they are bewildered. They, in their minds, like they're the good guys. They're trying to provide tools that give you know, the minority female a chance at these bigger jobs because they would argue they're blinding the process to any uh, human bias. But again, and so they like they are absolutely bewildered that they're going to come under fire for this. But since it's a new tool, since there's not a lot of case law out there, this is an area where, tr- where plaintiff's lawyers are, are going to exploit, even though, again, you know, as we've been saying, the point is if you, if you know, if you bring in a third party to find to find you a new you know you know central um, you know uh, yeah chief chief employment ethics officer anything like that yeah yeah they're going to uh, they're going to they're going to be very very useful to use those AI tools but again it's just a matter of giving the plaintiffs attorneys new areas to play in you know these software providers think they're on the side of the angels right like they, if you talk to these guys they're saying look use our tool, diversify your workforce, give that, you know, minority female who you might otherwise not, um, you might not, not otherwise, uh, you know, come into contact with, or you, you know, you might, you know, we eliminate human bias. We're going to, we are trying to proactively uh, diversify workforces. And I'm, and, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to convince these guys that while they think they're doing the right thing and they are, uh, the, pl- the plaintiff's attorneys see this very, very differently. They see it as an opportunity to say that, look, somewhere out there, there's going to be some qualified candidate that the computer missed for all these reasons. And here's your lawsuit. So, look, this is going to be a ripe area. We have, have to follow this. I don't know what the regulations are going to look like. I don't know what they're going to do. But I do think they're going to you know, be very, very clever in how they come after some employer who used some AI tool to you know, to, to, to find an employee and a more qualified uh, minority or female employee didn't get that job. And they're, they're going to, um, and they're going to begin to go down this road and they're going to say, look, we need regulations this area. And I think it's going to be really, really problematic because again, so many of your listeners and my members use these tools proactively, properly to make sure they can diversify their workforce. Well, that's what the industry needs is yet another 
issue crisis, Ed. So thank you uh, for bringing all that to our attention. So the, the get here is for employers, no matter whether they are large and small, to work with their, I guess, legal and HR teams to understand this kind of evolving space of law and public policy and be sure as they're leveraging either third-party firms or internal AI tools yep. that they understand kind of where the puck is going in this space and can can adapt and prepare accordingly. Is that the is yeah? That the yeah, no, that's exactly right. So um, understand what AI tools you're you know you're using. Um, I've told my my members, general counsels at retail establishments at, at restaurant establishments, you know, talk to HR, understand what they're doing, what tools they're using. And then, um, and then just, you know, and then continue to keep an eye on what the EEOC does in the space, but yeah, know what you're doing, know how they're using these tools. Um, you know, again, are they calling these tools to three candidates? Are they calling these two tool, you know, are they using the, t- the tools to trim the field to 20 candidates? Like understand what, how, what, and how, what exact product you're using, and then get on the phone with, you know, with the, with the, with the vendor. And say, okay, look, you know, we got these regulations coming out. We've looked at the New York City law. We've looked at the. We're looking at what, what DC wants to do. What do, What do you guys think? Um, and that's what. And anyway, again, it's going to be a very, very evolving area. But I, I, like I said, I think trial lawyers are itching to get involved in this area, and the new EEOC is their opportunity to do so. I've never been happier in my life to be a luddite, my friend. Okay. Yeah, this is, this I hear. Also, super, super confusing. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate that. That's phenomenal uh, uh, education uh, on, on that particular issue. Uh, pivoting to the NLRB, other 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 yeah. favorite agencies in, in Washington. What's what's happening there? You know, my audience audience for Working Lunch podcast is probably PhD level candidates in the right. joint employer issue. Yeah, uh, they understand every nuance of that. Yeah, uh, what's going on in that space? We talked. At, we, we talk at length on this podcast about yep. the ongoing, I'll just say, conversation and dialogue between the NLRB and Starbucks and the NLRB and Amazon. Yep. Of, of particular interest to you, what, what what is happening at the NLRB that that this audience should be most kind of aware okay. of? Yeah, let's following. let's start. Yeah, let's start with the board itself. Uh, right now, it is three Democrats and one Republican. Uh, Marvin Kaplan's still over there. Um, as a Republican, but now they have three Democrats. So one of them is about to roll off. Uh, Gwendolyn Wilcox is about to roll off here in about two to three weeks. It does not look like the Senate has enough time to act on her nomination. She did clear committee. She got a Republican vote, uh, Lisa Murkowski of, of Alaska. So she's probably going to get reconfirmed uh, under, you know, under the uh, under the nuclear option that Harry Reid established a few years ago. She's going to get reconfirmed. But there is going to be some sort of uh, pause here. There's going to be a time whereby she rolls off the board and the the Democrats are only going to have two votes. I think that's significant for a few reasons. First is they're going to want to, uh, under the tradition of the board, you're not supposed to. And this is just tradition. Honestly, Joe, it's not statute. It's not regulation. It's just what they do over there. You're not supposed to change precedent unless you have the three votes. So there's going to be some activity here in the next few weeks before she rolls off. And again, she rolls off in about three weeks. Um, And we might see the joint employer final rule come out during the time period. I don't know. It's possible. Um, But we are going to see some significant, significant decisions. Uh, You know, exactly what they look like. I don't know yet. But um, 
I think just the membership of the board itself, once she falls off um, and then it's going to be uh, it's going to be a couple weeks before, uh, you know, before they get her back on. So we are going to have a little bit of a pause in the precedent changing decisions coming out of the NLRB for its for some period of time. You know, how long the time is probably not too much, you know, probably four or five, six weeks for all the heck I know. Um, but I do expect that she has the votes in the Senate. But, I, I, you know, I do think that over the next few weeks and, you know, my members are like, oh, good. We get we get a break for uh, for August from, you know, from <clears throat> from stuff coming down from Capitol Hill, which we do. But um, my stuff is going to be very hot over the next few weeks. I don't know exactly what decisions it could, it could be. They could make some more decisions on the union's access to employer property. They could make some decisions on the union's ability to force the employer to give them access to their, say, email systems or Slack systems or team systems. Anyway, all this stuff, um, you know, is going to come down the pike here in a few weeks. That's awesome. And we, we've talked about some of that, but not all of that. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you, you feeling that in. The other, the other piece of the NLRB that I think is important for employers is, and you know, I'm, I've been around a minute or two and I watched a lot of different NLRBs under a lot of different leadership yep. uh, regimens. But I, I, I don't remember, and you're, you're an expert in the space. I'm not. I'm a generalist. You're an expert. But um, I, I don't recall ever seeing such forceful leadership out of the home office in Washington, you know, leadership slash direction, where they are imploring their field offices and field teams to go find cases. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's like – you know, ambulance chasing lawyers running through emergency rooms, go find cases. And I, I've just never, usually the, the cases come to them. And I, I don't remember, and I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I just don't remember a leadership regime in the NLRB in, in my, you know, career that has aggressively, you know, admonished and cajoled their field offices into going out and finding producing cases. I don't, I just don't remember that. Yeah, no. Um, look, so moving on to the general counsel side, obviously, Ms. Abruzzo is as aggressive as she can possibly be. Um, she is moving the, the GC's office into places they have never have never really gone before. Non-competes or, um, you know, all sorts of different, you know, all sorts of different areas where you say, like, why on earth um, is she getting anywhere near these issues? Yeah. So um, and again, she's putting out these memos and she's asking, look, her her. Uh, or field offices. Hey, look, you know, you know, find me some stuff on non-competes, find me some stuff on areas where we can challenge this and that, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean like, you know, like we're going to continue to watch that. There's been, I mean, I think she's probably frustrated with the pace of the board. The board is not moving as fast as she would like, I'm sure in some areas. So, um, you know, um, I, you know, how this all plays out, you know, continues to play out is, is, is really, I, you know, I don't, I just, it's hard for me to say, you know, I do think on some of these decisions, particularly on the Amazons and Starbucks stuff, you know, some of the some of the places where she's gone is so clearly beyond the scope of the act that I, I you know, I do actually think that the board's like, oh gosh, you know, do we have to take this up? And you know, if so are we just going to get our, our hands slapped down by by federal courts? Like, you know, I mean, we just got to continue watching all this. Um, I, I will say we've had very good conversations with uh, folks on the on the ho- in the House Republicans about you know can we do appropriation riders to try to try to pare back some of this stuff. So you know. not an unprecedented strategy. Earlier in my career, we had OSHA uh, in a lot of ways running wild on a bunch of 
Ergonomics comes to mind. Ergonomics, yeah. And, and we did riders. We did riders on the NLRB with single site back in the Arlen Specter days. So it's a it's it's a rare strategy, but can be effective to kind of defund that activity. So that's that's a whole other can yeah. of worms. And I'm sure in this particular Senate, they're not going to go for that. But yeah, but just, but just the threat of it helps, right? Yeah. I mean, just just having that out there. And so you know, and like in the House bill funding the Labor Department, um, they have. Um, they have writers on joint employer. They have writers on independent contractor, yeah. which is just again just helpful to have to have that kind of have that kind of scrutiny. And uh, certainly, uh, shout out to uh, Virginia Fox and her amazing staff for all the work they're doing to to hold the uh, hold the NLRB accountable. Uh, and pivoting to Virginia Fox, she's been among the, 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 the loudest voices on the Hill when it comes to obviously it's a Senate conversation about the confirmation of Julie Sue, but she has been loud yep. and proud in her uh, critiques of our acting labor secretary. Last week, the White House signaled their intention to kind of walk away, per se, uh, from the nomination, not getting rid of her, but yep. you know, walking away from pursuing a, a formal confirmation vote that it was unlikely for them to survive. And so, you know, for the foreseeable future, yep. we have the acting Secretary Julie Sue. I don't know that it changes that much. My, my colleague and I uh, continue to go back and forth and disagree as to how much person that seat actually matters and whether an acting designation actually matters. Um, obviously, optics are important, especially in Washington, D.C. Having scalps on the wall for your constituencies is important in Washington, D.C., campaigns, fundraising, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. I guess first question for our listeners, again, you know, is the acting tag on Julie Sue let's say let's play out that she's acting for the remainder of the Biden administration. Does the acting tag on her prevent her from doing anything that she couldn't do as full secretary? It's a great question. And um, one I don't have a great answer for. Um, I, I think, I think the administration has clearly made the decision. And by the way, there is a freestanding statute, uh, a 1984 statute. She is not, it, 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 that freestanding statute addresses just the labor department she is not in her position under the Vacancies Act. So, I, you know, there's a lot of, and I'm not a lawyer myself, there's a lot of legal questions around here, uh, around this about, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the administration is arguing, and I am not in a position to say they're totally wrong about this. Yeah, again, I haven't really looked into it. Uh, the administration is arguing that under this 1984 law that she can pretty much do her job uh, as if she was confirmed, even though obviously she doesn't have the votes. So, you know, and um, look, the whole Julie Sue discussion since since the beginning has been, you know, even if even if she even if her her nomination was stopped, would it would it really change the behavior of the department? Um, for all the reasons you just articulated that, you know, that she can stay in, she's already the confirmed deputy. She can stay in the acting position. And I think they've made the decision. We're just going to, we're just going to go forward the house, the, the house Democrats, the Senate Democrats are going to have to, you know, complain and write their letters to the GAO and ask for clarity on this particular issue uh, of her tenure, of her ability to serve as acting, et cetera, et cetera. You know, my point of view is we got we're going to have to continue to uh, scrutinize these these regulations as they come out, and I can roll through a few that she's about to put out or has put out. Um, but they clearly made the decision about two week week and a half, two weeks ago, that hey, look, we had put some stuff on pause for a while to try to get her nomination through. We didn't put anything controversial out of the Labor Department. 
while her nomination was out there. But look, we cannot wait forever, right? We got a Congressional Review Act deadlines in 2024. We cannot wait forever. We got to get these proposals out. And that means that we're going to basically have to tank her nomination, give give up on her being confirmed, and we will continue to work with her as, as an acting. That's the argument they've made. That's what they're going to go with. I do think it gives us another argument that when we take these to court, I think I think we can make a, make the make the uh, make the case that she is not confirmed. Uh, uh, our friends over at the Flex Coalition already sent a letter uh, <clears throat> describing their concerns with with any regulation that comes out during during her tenure as acting secretary. So, I mean, I think that's just going to be another issue um, in addition to all the other APA challenges. You know, if we're talking about independent contractor, you know, FLSA challenges, another argument we can make when we when and if we have to challenge these regulations in court is that, look, she's she put out these regulations and she's she did so without advice and consent. Um, and, well, you know, we'll have to see what the federal courts say. But I do think there I, I do think there is, you know, what the administration is arguing is they, they've looked at this 1984 statute and said, look, she can she can stay. The 1984 statute is um, describes more or less the situation we're in, which is what the administration would argue. So, yeah, we're, we're here and we got an acting and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And it just it, it bothers me. I'm kind of now the old guy on the balcony of the Muppets. But, you know, the blue team will, will get on the high horse and argue uh, exactly the opposite of what they argued when Trump was doing this. And the red team will get on their high horse and exactly the argument, the exact opposite argument that, that, you know, when the red team did this, you know, it's just that's why Americans hate hate the system. But, um, I, you know, I, I think I think that the, the bottom line for operators, large and small, is when you're running that business, you're running Ed Eddie's Bar and Grill in Virginia yeah. Beach, Virginia. Yeah. Um, and as the locals say, near Norfolk, um, yeah. you know, it, I don't think it matters to you. You just it's right. going to be the same. It's the same world, the same structure. And, you know, you, you can let the D.C. part of the game play the run its course. But in terms of your operational, what's happening, I don't think you're ever going to know whether it's Julie Sue there or it's Ed Eggie there, whether it's acting Ed Eggie or acting Julie Sue. I think for the purposes of your operation, large and small, uh, the game continues on. The, the, the boat is sailing the same course. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, maybe we just go through, you know, for that bar and girl owner, you know, what she could do. And I, I, your, your audience has heard this, so, but, you know, let's, let's just talk about a few of them. And where they are over time. So this is the threshold under which you can, as the employer, potentially exempt workers. Um, excuse me. Above the above the salary threshold, you can exempt workers provided they meet the duties test. Below the threshold, you cannot exempt anybody from overtime from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So if you have a manager who's earning, say, you know, low level manager who's earning, say, forty eight thousand dollars a year, this is this is the regulation that would address this person. Um, so that threshold that which is currently sitting at $36,500 a year that's going to go up how much I don't know I have my I have my guesses but that regulation is now over at the White House I have a meeting with them tomorrow to discuss it um so I think we're going to see that new number it's a proposal um I, and usually what what ten, what my guess is it's going to come out that number new number is going to be somewhere in the mid to high 50s um, and, um, it's going to be, you know, it's, that's a pretty contra, you know, it's going to really affect- a lot of disappointed Democrats on the Hill. If it comes out in the mid fifties, you know, yep. they're going to yep. want something in the seventies. 
you know. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, 82 was the number of the progressive caucus in the House throughout. So, yeah. Anyway, so whatever that number is, I look, I don't think we've talked about this before, Joe, so I won't go too far into it. But, they, you know, they can't go too high. Right. We, we you know, we and uh, NRF and the Restaurant Association, and others, you know, we sued back in 2015 and we had the old one struck down. We said, look, if you go too high, you're going to render those duties tests irrelevant. So I think the lawyers inside the Labor Department have been have been running around the secretary's office saying, I know you're getting heat to do this, but if we go too high, we're going to run into the same problem our friends did eight years ago. And um, I think they got that message loud and clear. <laughs> I think they understand they can't go too, too high. Um, because again, they, especially in rural rural areas of this country, you know, a, a threshold at 65, anybody making $65,000 a year in those rural areas already has some duty um, that, 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 you know, some professional duty, some executive duty, some white collar duty. And so, um, look, I, 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 you know, I'll we'll see, we'll see. But uh, my guess, if I'm just sitting here right now and if you're, we're going to put money on it, I'm going to say lower than, than 60. And we, we, uh, we talked about this at length last week with uh, okay. the sidekick at the National Restaurant Association. Aaron okay, good. And so, yeah, that's the big one. If I'm the, if I'm an independent operator, uh, that's a huge one that's, that I've got to be really aware of and really smart on and make sure I comply with because as we've seen at the federal, state and local level, um, while, you know, the, the, the rule changes happen or legislation passes, gets enacted, um, the blue team is super good at the uh, enforcement structure that they put around it. Yeah. Um, and whether it's Los Angeles County or the federal government, they do a very good job of holding people's feet to the fire for new things. So uh, never, never a dull moment. Uh, Mr. Eggy, um, I know it is, it's a busy time. There's never, you know, the, the, the Hill lobbyists have like most of the summer off. It's the policy people like you said, that <laughs> have time off because it's always happening. It's always yeah. happening at the zoo. Right. And um, yeah. so I appreciate the fact that you're busy that you, uh, no, no, no. Always happy to come back. And that, um, that AI conversation on the hiring piece, super fascinating. Uh, I haven't heard anyone talking about it. I'm sure in, 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 the, in the smart person circles, they're talking about it. But in terms of this general conversation out about in the industry, I haven't heard anybody talking about that. So it's super interesting and um, really, really fascinating stuff. Can I just add one thing for your listeners? If you are interested in learning more about this, um, my friend uh, Keith Sonderling, who's still over at the EOC, a member, member of, the, of the commission over there, he has given multiple speeches about this, um, and they're on YouTube. And he he has looked into this extensively. He is he is he's the expert. And so, if you are interested in kind of going deeper, if, you know, if you're if you're the general counsel and you know this is a new issue to you. Uh, and you want to, you know, you really want to understand it better. Better just go ahead and pull up Keith's uh, speeches uh, and his presentations to uh, over on YouTube, and I think they're they're much more helpful than I can be. Ah, that's such good counsel, man. I really appreciate that uh, that uh, pro tip, man. I, uh, I, you know, usually at the end of these interviews with guests, I feel I feel pretty stupid, but man, I I feel really stupid after talking to you every always time. always a pleasure to come back. I mean, anytime. Yeah, uh, yeah, fantastic. All right, my friend. Well, you get on with your day. Uh, I appreciate you stopping by and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. Your buddy, Bernie Sanders cannot stay out of the news. He is tilting at some more windmills on Capitol Hill. My Bernie bro. Um, 
Yep. I think we reported on this last week, but it's it's official now. Um, they have introduced legislation, he and some of his colleagues, to raise the minimum wage $17 an hour by 2028. Why not? You know, um, look, $15 an hour 10 years ago seemed crazy. $17 an hour seems kind of crazy, but I think we're going to have a bunch of states and jurisdictions pursuing levels close to that in, in the near future. So um, that's what it is, Joe. Also eliminates the tip credit and other exemptions from the minimum wage for, you know, youth or workers with disabilities or, you know, some of those things that have been written into state law to help disadvantaged workers uh, get into the workplace. Franklin, what does acronym DOA mean? Yeah, it is DOA. It is dead on arrival um, in the Congress. But um, but that ain't where a lot of the legislating is happening, Joe. And this is a national messaging bill that will be used to kind of advance this and in, in a bunch of other jurisdictions. Well, we keep talking about the the number moving. And, you know, we'll look back one day at the, the quaint old days of $15. We've got Massachusetts with a potential ballot initiative going to 20 uh, we've got a couple jurisdictions in New Mexico looking at $25 minimum wages. So we are on the move on the minimum wage front. Franklin, speaking of Massachusetts, your friends at the Fiscal Alliance Foundation have a new poll out based on uh, voter attitudes regarding a potential big hike in the minimum wage. Pretty evenly divided electorate, 44 to 42%, slightly supportive of a minimum wage proposal. I suspect that's within the margin of error. I did not look that deeply at the poll, but um, that looks like it's going to be a, a, a fight, a dog fight based in this polling. And I, I'm a, I can't remember is Boston's a 50% plus one. I, I don't, I don't remember. I have to go look that up, but anyway, the electorate split, but the fact that there's that much support from you know, this group doing this polling for a $20 an hour minimum wage should be a, a little bit of a cause for concern for for everyone. Um, so that's probably the key takeaway here is even with a, uh, you know, not a kind of left of center group throwing up a, a BS push poll. You know, let's let's just assume without digging too deep, that this is reasonably well done and, and down the middle, maybe even tilting towards our side of things, you know, a 44% support potentially for $20 an hour. Franklin, Taos, New Mexico, we're going to know uh, next week or two whether they're going to uh, pursue a $25 minimum wage uh, wage in that tourist town. 25 Why not, Joe? 30 you know, uh, we've got that under discussion in California. You know, why not 25? What's interesting here is um, the city council meeting turned into a bit of a circus, it seems like. And who was leading the charge in opposition to uh, the minimum wage increase there? It was Michael's Kitchen, Ali Cantina, uh, Manny's Chow Cart, and and Taos Lifestyle. So you've got basically the hospitality industry is, is kind of the tip of the spear in opposing this. Um, so whether we like it or not, this is going to become an industry issue there. And we've seen activity in, in other corners of New Mexico recently as well. So 
Obviously, the political dynamics at the state level in New Mexico are, are challenging. So it looks like New Mexico, Joe, may be a, a little bit of a hot spot in the near term for activity in this space. Well, certainly one of the hot spots for the space is uh, my hometown of Washington, D.C., Franklin. A lot of uh, operators are, are getting out ahead of this the, the new law with regard to the ballot initiative eliminating tip credit and really uh, leveraging some service fees, creating quite a stir. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. The Give it a Google, the Axios DC newsletter. You know, they have regional newsletters now. Um, this was the lead this week, a couple days ago, midweek. Initiative 82 service fees are popping up in DC is the headline. Give it a Google. But um, yeah, you can see we talked about this before that uh, this happens all the time. The Obamacare fee, you know, blah, blah, blah. What's under discussion and, and part of the discussion in D.C. is, you know, this this has been incorporated a little bit into the solution that the industry is seeking um, in D.C. in response to Initiative 82 as well. So, you know, restaurateurs are jumping ahead and throwing an Initiative 82 fee line on the bill and they're getting beat up a little bit online as, as patrons see that popping under their bill. So, um, it's a live conversation in DC, Joe, and we can, we'll continue to be for a while. Over 150 restaurants have adopted initiative 82 fee. So, uh, you know, it's, it's gonna, that whole issue space is getting super, super interesting. Uh, Franklin staying in Washington, DC, your friends at the national labor relations board, uh, put out. Uh, through the Federal Register this week, their agenda, upcoming agenda, and one of their placeholders for August is the final NLRB joint employer rule. Your thoughts? Well, um, we know we've we've known it's coming. Um, so you know, oftentimes these 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 calendars will get pushed. So it, d- it doesn't guarantee it's going to be in August, but. We've been expecting it for a while, whether it's in August or September or, you know, tomorrow or January, it's it's coming and we're probably not going to like it, Joe, is going to be my guess. So we'll we'll see how that plays out. There's clearly going to be litigation. This is, you know, this is probably going to go through the entire Biden presidency, whether that's another couple years or, or you know, six-ish years, you know, whatever that looks like. So, um uh, We'll just keep reporting on it, Joe. That's what I got for you this week. Franklin, Washington, D.C. was over 100 degrees this week. Uh, the heat is everywhere, including at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They're feeling the heat about standards and, and uh, protecting workers in heat-related you know, uh, jobs with high heat content. And so there's been a lot of pressure on more inspections. So OSHA is feeling its own heat. And uh, down here in Florida, if you step into the Gulf of Mexico, you're feeling the heat. It's 100 degrees in, in the water in the Keys right now. So this has been a perennial issue in, in summer months. We've talked about it for some time. OSHA and Cal OSHA and others have, have really been targeting this over the past, I don't know, let's call it five years it's you often see where restaurants where the AC breaks in the summer and the manager has everyone still working and it's 120 degrees in the kitchen and 
So you've seen these stories, obviously, with the heat dome settled over parts of the U.S., you know, these these stories are more likely. And OSHA has been on a kind of ramp up basis, has been getting more and more and more involved in this space. Obviously, for restaurant and retailers, it's important, particularly in those circumstances where the AC goes out. But also OSHA is looking at those, you know, outside jobs as well. Um, landscaping or holding the sun and the side of the highway for the highway crews and that sort of thing, given the heat. Expect more activism in this space, not only from federal OSHA, but also from state uh, arms of OSHA. And expect to probably see some activity at these local, you know, uh, wage boards, wage and standard boards in like LA County or LA city, you know, you can see them getting into the act. I expect that we're, we're going to see more and more activity in the space and operators need to be prepared for it. Yeah. Op- that's the point. Operators need to be prepared, not do anything stupid, be cognizant of how much heat's in the kitchen, be cognizant of your HVAC units. And in this environment, uh, any, any kind of misstep is going to be headlines. So operators better make sure they're paying attention to that kind of that outside the four walls, uh, what's going on in this kind of, in this space. Franklin, uh, a new wrinkle in the ongoing saga of Starbucks, it appears the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation Fund is uh, trying to organize workers to decertify union votes. What's going on there? Yeah, they're, they're targeting the, um, or workers, at the Starbucks Reserve Roastery are working with the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation to try to decertify the union there. Um, the NLRB has effectively dismissed a petition um, to decertify the union there. And so that will set back efforts. And, you know, there's kind of a there's a pretty tight time frame through which, you know, decertification has to take effect. This is a biggie for Starbucks. This is a flagship in Manhattan. It's a lot of employees, a lot more employees than a regular Starbucks location, number one, different pay rates, but it's also, it's a flagship. And so I think it's meaningful beyond just the, how many workers are organized, you know, kind of the the success of the union and how it's doing relative to Starbucks. So um, this will be an important fight for both the company and the union. And at least temporarily, it seems like, the, the unions have notched a victory, um, the NLRB siding with with the, the union, and uh, we'll see how this continues to play out. There's a lot of decertification efforts going on around the country right now. This is one of many. Franklin, one of the odder stories of the week was uh, these Casa Bonita employees, a uh, restaurant started by the, the creators of South Park, uh, are are screaming mad, at, wanting a whole bunch of demands and access to their celebrity owners. And lo and behold, the Restaurant Opportunity Center has found its way into this fracas. Um, This is classic Restaurant Opportunity Center target where you have high profile um, owners with kind of a big media profile that theoretically are more susceptible to national headlines and are uh, more willing to come to the bargaining table through kind of a reputation campaign. They're upset, Joe, because um, the uh, uh, what's it is it Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I think those are the names of the guys. But anyway, they've they've bought this restaurant that was basically bankrupt and foreclosed on during COVID. They put 
tens of millions of dollars into renovating it. And when they started out with like a limited menu, there were no tips flowing. And so they set a flat rate, no tips at $30 an hour for workers. And workers are steaming mad that they're only getting $30 an hour and they want their tips and they want a worker representation committee and they want a chance to yell at old uh, my boys, Trey and Matt. And this is classic kind of rock, rock reputation campaign activity here. Um, I'd go back to writing uh, animated series if I were if I were these guys. I'd, I'd, I'd bail right out of here. Maybe. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's in Colorado. Maybe open a weed a weed plant, something I, I would get out of this business and, and, you know, who wants to be just keeping a restaurant open is hard enough, you know, going through this crap, man, who needs it? So anyway, we'll see how this kind of plays out. It's a headline grabber. And that's why we probably won't see things die down in the near term because folks are going to, the, the activist set is going to want to generate some headlines out of this. Well, and it puts them in a, in a weird spot because, you know, they and their writers and directors, brethren are on strike in Hollywood. So, you know, on the one hand, they're being activist union members and striking, and then they're dealing with activist employees in their own restaurants. So it's kind of a little bit of a dilemma. Franklin, National Bureau of Labor Statistics put out some data uh, this week saying 17 states uh, in the month of June had record unemployment rates and another dozen were near record unemployment rates half the country record unemployment that's not good news for upward pressure on wages is it man i need to like fully process that um that's unbelievable i I just i gotta let that sit i gotta sit with that for a second that really is unbelievable and yeah it speaks to the challenge for operators for entry-level employers generally and it does not does not bode well. You know, you think inflation's falling and things are starting to to loosen up and get a little better, and then there's all these cross cutting figures you can find any day or any week that that tell you that man, for operators, it's still it's a squeeze and it's a pinch. Those are unbelievable numbers, and yeah, that that doesn't that doesn't bode well for wage pressure, inflation in, in kind of wages, but also for operators getting folks through the door. Franklin, that's been uh, a couple of weeks since we talked about pregnant pigs, but uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey uh, signed that bill uh, eliminating gestation crates for pigs and young calves for veal. Uh, been about a 10-year conversation in New Jersey on that subject. Well, and of course, the Part of the backdrop there is this um, Supreme Court case loosening things up more broadly in this space. And so I would not be surprised if we have a number of states and a number of activist groups um, springing back into action. And so these issues that have been dormant for years or, you know, in this case, a decade um, or, or more, I think I think if you're the humane society, you're going to press right now. Now is the time to go in the offensive with with the Supreme Court ruling in the Massachusetts case and see how far you can press and, and take it. So no surprise here. I think we've predicted coming out of Massachusetts, we're going to see more activism. And it looks like New Jersey is first out of the gestation crate on that. So um, 
yeah, more more to come in this space, no doubt. And Franklin, the last item um, we talked a little bit about uh, data from different agencies this week, but um, um, Labor Department put out some data that uh, child labor violations are up almost fifty percent this year. Another issue like hot kitchens and some of these others that operators need to be really, really smart about. Wow. That's another, another stat I need to sit with for a second. Um, I, uh, so clearly as operators have needed to find more workers and as the industry has pushed for loosening rules up in, in some States around young people serving, alcohol beverage and da, 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 all these rules. There's been an increased focus at the exact same time from labor advocates and from enforcement agencies um, to, to get aggressive in this space. I wonder how much this is driven by increased cases versus increased enforcement actions and attention. It's probably both and it's probably impossible to unwind, you know, which is the larger of the two drivers. But yeah, this look, we need workers, and the workers we have, we you know, I understand that operators are trying to get every hour out of them they can just to keep the store operational. But kind of going back to the heat thing, you've got to understand and appreciate that this area is drawing incredible focus and energy from the enforcement uh, community, from regulators right now, and you have to get this right. Um, quite frankly, if we're going to continue to have it part of our political agenda and issue set to loosen the rules around this stuff, then we have to be double buttoned up on the compliance side to have any credibility to continue to, to lobby that. So this is an important issue. We talk about it a lot, but we'll, we'll continue talking about it. And we're going to be, the industry is going to be the top of the top of the batting order, you know, not, the, some of the poultry manufacturers and some of the other plants, but certainly the restaurant industry is, is, is high on that list. A McDonald's franchisee in uh, Texas with a number of restaurants got a significant fine uh, this week. So we all got to be vigilant on that front. And, some sub, uh, some subcontractor to a subcontractor to a subcontractor of a, a chicken processing facility is not going to draw the headlines that a big, international brand like like the golden arches does and so you're right like there's going to be enforcement actions everywhere but the ones that are going to draw the headlines are going to be our 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 guys so and that is going to create political incentives for labor commissioners and and others to to pursue us as well um so sorry to interrupt joe but yeah this is this is an issue we 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 it seems like we talk about every week but like it, it it continues to ramp up and escalate every week as well yeah, it's it's uh, this is kind of one of these circular firing squad issues that we, we really are on thin ice with. Uh, it really bothers me. Um, but uh, big scorecard uh, this week and we will have another one for you next week. Well, Mr. Coley, this was Working Lunch episode 299. Next podcast will be our 300th podcast. Wow. Uh, looking forward to that. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Um, but uh, before we wrap up this week, I know that you attended uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council meeting, which happened to be in Orlando, Florida. Anything of note for our listeners with regard to what happened at ALEC? Yeah, uh, I'll give you the full rundown. The margaritas at the Florida 
uh, night party were phenomenal. The Ritz has a great martini in the in the bottom bar. Um, and then for the opening night party, you know, I would I would recommend going with the with the bourbon fizz. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a great. Joe Renzel was not there, so I felt like I had to pick up the slack um, and do some do some extra pinky lifts uh, on his behalf. He did have colleagues there, um, by the way. But no, it was a good meeting. I can't believe how long it is. They start the subcommittee meetings like a week before, so it ends up being really two weeks all together. And then the committee meetings are there, you know, on site. So it's, it's two weeks of policy and they were, there was a lot of stuff going on in the policy front. Obviously there was a lot in the the networking front as well. And of course the Florida contingency was, was super heavy uh, because the speaker designate is, is the chair and it was in Orlando, Florida. So with a lot of our Florida peeps there, there were a lot of, a lot of folks saying, what are you doing here? And I was like, buddy, what are you doing here? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a speaker here. I've, you know, I've been coming here for a decade and a, and, and a half. Um, but it was it was good. It was a good event all around. Um, clearly, there were a lot of touchstones that were expected. Joe ESG was a big topic. Um, that was one of the more packed topics that were that were covered. Um, our our friends, the hotels, HLA did a big panel and no room for trafficking, um, and it was. Samantha Pageant stood up there and said, I'm standing here at Alec telling you to regulate us. We want you to legislate and regulate us. And uh, she talked about kind of model policy where the industry has come together and asked for greater regulation to stamp out human trafficking. And uh, that was a packed room, too, and was really well received. And um, I heard in the hallways after that there were at least seven states in there and at least six of them had come up and asked, you know, for for kind of the, the model policy. So um, it was, I think it was good. It was good all around. It was good. Um, it'll be interesting to compare that and side by side that with NCSL, which I think is a couple weeks away um, and what the agenda looks there like there. So yeah, it's conference season full swing, Joe, somebody's got to do it. And I picked up the slack this week. Well, you, I'm sure you represented the industry well and uh yeah, it's, it's conference season's kind of started to wind to a, wind to an end a little bit, but for, for a few more weeks before schools get back in and people get back to their their, their day jobs. But uh, all right, my friend. Well, another week, another pod. Next week is pod number three hundred, and uh, look forward to that. And until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. 